welcome to episode 35 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gall, and thank you to those of you who have listened to the podcast before and you're coming back for more, and welcome to those of you that are new. Today, my guest on the podcast is David Hasbury, and David comes on the podcast to help us think differently about disability. Dave has worked for over 30 years in the disability sector, and he's really that whole time been committed to empowering people with disabilities to creatively shape their world and to help them creatively shape how they want to live their lives. Uh, Dave currently works with his wife and partner, Patty Scott, uh, at an organization called Neighbors International, based out of New Jersey uh, and the United States. And they work with uh, families uh, and individuals with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. They work with communities, organizations, and governments, really making it possible for uh, people with developmental disabilities to live as uh, contributing citizens and community members. So really cool stuff that that they do. And on this podcast, Dave and I have a great conversation thinking about disability differently. But Dave really shows and, and talks to the history of, of how we got to the point that we're at today. And he talks about three big waves um, in disability. And he shares those and it helps to give some ground grounding in terms of how we got to where we are today. And we also talk about how to shift, how to take uh, the right mindsets and to ask the right questions and, and to help uh, shift towards uh, really an individualized and, and citizenship or person-centered and person-centered approach uh, to help people live the, the lives that they want to live and to help them live their dreams. So Really great conversation here with, with Dave. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And if you do, uh, I please welcome you to share this conversation with someone else that you think would find value of it. So here's Dave. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Eric. How are you doing? Yeah, awesome. How are you? Good, good. Good. Happy to have you on. And yeah, uh, happy here. Yeah. So maybe, Dave, you could just start off telling us a little bit about you, who you are, what you do. Okay. Well, um, at this point, for the last uh, nine years, I've lived down in New Jersey here, where I work um, with my wife and partner, Patty Scott, through an organization called Neighbors International. Um, we do a lot of education, consulting, planning with people with disabilities, their families, the agencies that work and support them, and governments that are trying to um, be supportive of them. And uh, we've done that together for, like I said, almost eight, nine years. Um, I spent my early years, the early 50 years, um, living in Ontario, um, and uh, where I did a lot of work around uh, supporting self-advocates through People First, um, doing a lot of graphic facilitation, and since the 1980s, when person-centered planning was being developed, um, doing a lot of work around person-centered planning um, for people in education um, and in community life. 
um, and supporting families through that process. So a lot of supporting families and people with disabilities to actually be citizens um, and helping organizations and families to figure out how to organize themselves so that the outcome is actually supporting the person um, as a citizen. So it's kind of the stuff that I do, and we do it. Um, we do this kind of work uh, around the world. So we spend time in Europe, um, Scotland and England, uh, Croatia, Romania, and we've been all across the United States, um, places in Canada and uh, Australia, New Zealand. So. Yeah, that's incredible. Thanks for, for sharing that, Dave. And, and you and I met at Toronto Summer Institute, TSI, yeah. this summer. Right. and. I had an opportunity to spend a fair amount of time with yourself and, and Patty, um, just trying to be a, a sponge and absorbing from from uh, your knowledge and, and, and wisdom. And I, I and there's some really important conversations that we had, and and one in particular that um, I think is really important to share with the podcast audience is really the the idea of how did we get to where we the point that we're at today in terms of the services that people um, expect in the disability sector? Would you be able to kind of walk us through sure. a bit of that history to help explain the point, sure. the point in time that we're at right now, Dave? Yeah, well, it's a long history, but it exactly has um, three big waves as far as um, I see. Um, the first actually being back in the 1800s when people, there was no definition of developmental disability, intellectual disability. Basically, people were just seen as strange, other um, imbeciles, insane, um, crazy. Um, and what happened to a lot of people is they ended up getting tossed into jail or their families kept them at home um, uh, being part of farm life or whatever. Um, but there was a lot of shame that was tied to all that and people ended up in jail and the governments decided at the time when they discovered that people over in jail, they, they ended up saying, you know, that's just kind of crazy. These people don't belong in jail. So that's where the whole idea of institutions came in mind. It was a progression to not being in jail, but being in a hospital like setting, uh, protecting people in the community from these rather odd folks, as at least that's the way they were seen. Um, and that lasted for, um, well, you know, 80 years, um, kind of as the dominant way that you either stayed at home with your family or you ended up in an institution. Until in the 1950s and 60s, when the treatment of people in institutions became exposed. Um, and really it became seen that, that we were warehousing people, um, and that wasn't right either. Meanwhile, what had happened was families, um, had, who had kept their sons and daughters at home, uh, gathered together to actually find a way for their sons and daughters to have support in their life, in particular, their children to be able to have a school opportunity because there was no right to an education for people with intellectual disabilities in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Um, that didn't come until the 1980s, really. Um, and so what they did was they formed classrooms um, and places for their sons and daughters to go to have a more normal life um, where they could learn um, and to be able to 
have a place um, that was safe in the community for them. And so what happened was, um, oh, and the other thing was, is that we progressed from kind of just seeing people as strange and crazy to actually identifying people as by the R word. Um, and in that we identified people in categories. So we had people who were trainable, um, educable, or severely or profoundly um, disabled. And we started to form groups according to that kind of idea. So we set up places in communities for people in these various categories to go um, and spend their days mostly. At the time, there wasn't really a lot of places for people to live until we started to move people out of institutions. And then the governments really decided to kind of take those models and apply them to residential life as well. So basically, we were looking for places for people to go where they would have a, quote, appropriate coverage, people that would be there. And they were looking for safe places in community. Um, because back at that era, there still was the kind of reality that people didn't feel like the communities were welcoming. And so the idea was people to be able to stay closer to their families um, and to be safe in the community. So that became the kind of dominant way that we thought about things is creating places. And what happened was the government actually started to buy the services of nonprofit organizations, many of them that were founded by these these groups of parents, um, to uh, to create these spaces in community. And that's what they actually did. The government literally bought spaces with coverage to keep people safe. And that was kind of the contracting of it all. Um, the idea of an individual was never a part of that. It was about safe places in community settings where people would be covered. Um, and that really still kind of is the dominant kind of way that we do things now. But in the last 30 years, what's happened is the whole idea of people being individuals, of people being citizens, of the idea that children were finally allowed to go to school and many families fought for their sons and daughters to be able to go to school in the 1980s with their brothers and sisters so that they would grow up in the communities where they lived and be able to have a life. Um, and person-centered planning actually became a part of that era of how do we actually imagine people to be citizens instead of categorized disabled groups of people? Um, how do we imagine people as individuals and how could they be included in life um, uh, in the community or school or wherever that was? So as those parents actually took that way forward and said, you know, I'm no longer looking for a safe place. Um, uh, I'm actually looking for my son or daughter to be supported or self-advocates saying, I want a real home and a real job and a real education, um, not special, not special needs. I want to be a citizen like everybody else. As we started to take that on, then the whole idea of individualizing the funding resources so that people could control them in their life became a big idea. And that really took hold in the 1990s as an idea that families advocated for along with self-advocates. Um, but it wasn't 
until the 2000s that it actually started to really show up as a way that government started to make money available. But meanwhile, we have been historically been buying places, and you've heard these terms, beds, spaces, slots in programs that people fit into. And you either fit or you don't fit, or you either there either is a space available or there isn't a space available, in which case you go on a waiting list for a space. But it's still this basic idea that we're, we're paying for spaces with coverage to keep you safe in community settings. And that's the kind of historical place that we got to um, where that's the kind of dominant thing. So even now, um, there are families who actually receive individualized funds or a person who get is actually getting individualized funding available to them. And many people are still looking to go and buy the space with the coverage um, because that seems to be what they think they need. Um, but for myself and Patty, um, a lot of our work is if you're going to be a part of citizenship, if you're going to be a member who's included, um, we need to think differently about that. We need to think not so much about buying spaces, but actually about taking the little bit of resources that we have available to us and investing them in the right places with the right kind of support so that the little bit actually grows um, and our presence grows um, in those places. Um, so we're in a different era, but the, the current model that we have um, really was never designed. Um, the model of places and coverage was never designed with the idea of citizenship and control and inclusion in community life in mind. So it's really difficult to actually make that happen in people's lives if you're using an old system that was designed for a different purpose. And so we need to do things in new ways and we need to think differently about that. Right. So the, the systems have evolved over time to become uh, a placement and, and coverage model. How dominant is that model currently in the world today? And that's as of October 11th, right. <laughs> 2017. Yeah, it is still the dominant um, model. My uh, Patty uh, developed Neighbors Incorporated here in New Jersey. And it is a rare organization. Um, the idea of individualized support um, for all people. Like, so right now, there are places that are called supported independent living. Um, but basically, that was built on the idea of those categories. So if you had you know, severe to profound, trainable, and educable. So the idea that you're tearing up in terms of abilities, supported independent living became for those people who had the ability to do things on their own. And so they have some more individualized options because of all this. But the idea that everybody would have access to something on their own is a very rare idea. And even though we've been working on this over the last 20 years, it's still the dominant way that money is spent is through buying these places, these spaces, and 
the coverage that goes with them. Um, you know, recently in Ontario, like more than three quarters of the budget is spent on these kinds of placement and coverage models. Um, uh, even though it's only serving less than a third of the population. Um, so more than two thirds of the population is not served by these models, but we're spending more than three quarters of the, the money on those kinds of things, which is another part of this problem is, is that this idea of placement and coverage was never intended to be for everybody. So most people actually don't get support um, or they get very little support. It's certainly not enough to support their whole lives, which means we have to think differently. So, right. Did that answer you? Um, yeah, for sure. So, and, you know, I'm interested to continue our conversation in how do we make that next shift or how do we continue the momentum towards an individualized uh, individualized support to enable people to live the life that they want to live. So I'd like mm. to shift the conversation there and, and give some food for thought for, for folks to think about. Um, and just for listeners, uh, Dave's referenced his wife, Patty Scott and, and neighbors and Patty and I have recorded a, a podcast that talks all about neighbors. And if you're interested in learning more about the neighbors model and the values that they hold, very shortly after this podcast is released, that'll be coming out. So um, make sure to stay tuned for that. Um, so, so Dave, thinking about making that shift, um, and I'm, I'm sure there's probably different levels that the shift can happen at, from a government level, from an organization level, from a from a family or individual level. What is some of your thinking around? Uh, starting to make that shift towards that individualized person-centered approach to give people the life that they actually want and deserve? So on a couple of levels, um, the first one is that people need to begin to imagine what that life is that they're trying to create. What is, you know, what is the life that this person as a citizen wants to have? You know, what does Jane imagine she would want to be doing with her time? Where would she want to be? Who are the people she'd want to be related with? You just have to start to imagine that people actually want a life as a citizen and actually deserve that life as a citizen. So that's a starting place. Um, that's not really a hard place for a lot of people. They can kind of begin to get that in mind. But it's important for families who have a loved one to actually be thinking about not, not the sole focus on the person that they love as their vulnerability, but the person that they love in relation to other people in a community um, where they're valued for who they are. Um, and so you got to start to see it. If you can't see it, if you can't imagine it, you're not going to have a very easy time to create what that's all about. So you need to start to think about people differently. Um, and one of the problems is, is that by the time somebody becomes an adult at, you know, in their twenties, um, we've had 20 years of, of training individuals and their families to think of themselves in certain ways. 
the entire the education system, the healthcare system, the government funding system, all focuses on your problems. And the difficulty is, is in community life, your problems will never get you anywhere. Um, in community, you have to actually focus on what are you bringing um, to the community? What can you contribute? What value do you have to share um, uh, out there? So you need to start to think about people differently. And you need to start to imagine that. And then the second part is, is and this is where both governments and services need to think about is we need there isn't a group of citizens out there like i'm a citizen you're a citizen we each get to determine where we go the idea of self-determination of citizens is kind of the understanding of what citizen is all about right i you don't have to do what i do and i don't have to do what you do you don't have to go where I go. We're, we're going to decide where we put our time, energy, and resources to make that life. So we need to start to think about people actually as individuals on that front. Because, first of all, that's the way that people will be included. Um, Dave will get included with a group because Dave fits with that group and what that group is all about. Eric will be included somewhere else because of who he is and what he cares about and all that kind of thing and what he has to offer. So we need to think about people as individuals. And if we're going to think about people as individuals, then we need to think about people and the resources that are available to them individually. So you can't have, so people need to know what's available to me to be able to actually create that life that I'm trying to work on. Um, uh, so you need to individualize the resources. Um, so that means money needs to be individualized. Um, and people need to be able to control the use of that money in terms of deciding where, you know, where would be the best place to invest the resources that they have available. Um, the people who are hired to support someone needs to be individualized. There isn't a generic person with an intellectual disability. So you can't hire people based on a generic. <laughs> there isn't. It doesn't exist, even within a, all the categories. So if you had people with autism, there isn't a generic person with autism. You can't hire people for that. There isn't right. a generic person. So, so we need to think about um, be, people being able to invest the resources that they have to hire the people that would fit who they are and what they need. So you need to be able to imagine that kind of thing out there. So people need to have the resources individualized and including the idea of where people will live. And this is probably among the greatest challenges is that because people with intellectual disabilities are just far more likely to be economically on a, a low income status. Um, they're either unemployed or underemployed and they're not making enough money to actually. So that means where can people live that they can afford? And that is a much broader problem, but people need to be able to imagine that they can access resources for a place to live because where you live then sets up your whole life. Um, you know, I was talking with a guy recently who, um, used to live in an urban center 
Um, but it was very dangerous. Again, he was poor, so he lived in an area that um, also had a lot of people who were also in low income, and there was a lot of violence in the area where he lived. That's not to say all places where people have low income has violence, but it did in his case. And so the agency that supported him said, well, that's not good. We can't have him living in that neighborhood. So they moved him into a suburban group home um, far away from transit and no place to walk to get on his own. So he ended up being trapped living somewhere. You know, where you live makes a difference to how you can live your life. Um, so we need to think about being able to individualize the resources. So the, the money that you can use, the people that will support you and the place that you live need to be individualized so that you can establish yourself in some community. So those are things that we need to think and families need to think what can they do to make that possible in their life of the person that they love. Um, right. uh, so is that making sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And as you, as you were talking there and specifically thinking about the family and the individual perspective, the way that that with that the system has evolved now into placement and coverage almost victimizes the the family and the individual and they're kind of stuck with what they're being told they can have or are being provided and trying to fight for whatever they can get and what you're talking about is shifting into a mindset of abundance let's Think about what this person really desires, what their goals are, and let's create that and not be a victim to, to the system and, and shifting that mindset. Um, and I think that's such such an important message for for listeners to, to really think about and to think about what that means in, in their own life. Well, the, the what's happened historically is, is that um, we have not imagined growth for people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. We've actually, and, and, and families and, and professionals have even said, you know, this person has the, um, the mind of a five-year-old or a six. Like we've, we've, in, we've imagined that life stopped at some point, mm -hmm. which is totally not true and not even possible. Um, but so if you're imagining, so what we've done with this placement and coverage model is, is that you're not going anywhere. The idea of placement and coverage isn't that you're going anywhere. It's that you're placed somewhere. And there is no expectation that you move, that you change. You know, if you and I go off to college or university, we might decide to go into a group living arrangement called residence when we get started. There is no expectation on anybody that that's where we're going to stay. Mm -hmm. It's the thing that we go to on our way to the next thing. But for people with an intellectual disability and from a government perspective, what we're looking for is a place for you to go. And once you've got that place, then you actually go down the list in terms of our priority. We start to pay less attention to you, except making sure that bad things don't happen to you in that place. And so that's a big shift for people to make. The idea that imagining that whoever it is in a, is going to grow, then everything we do is about how are we making it possible for that growth to happen? 
And the, the previous model of placement coverage has no motivation for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and on, on both a psychological and an economic. I mean, the truth is, is that agencies that offer placements, it's not to their advantage for you to move on. Right? Because they're getting paid for that money space to be filled. Yeah. yeah. So, so so for families, you know, that are, you know, you just explained the way that the system is currently structured and, and operating and families are, are in that system and there's funding tied to it. It can be, I guess, how do we make the shift out of that kind of, you know, I'm going to take what I what I can get or that victim type mindset into that abundant mindset. What are some of the things that families can start to think about? What are the choices that we can consider um, to to move us in that direction? So it may it may be that um, people are for the majority of the time that they're using resources from government funding. It may be that they're still kind of stuck in those placements. But the question is, is that even within that, is it possible for them to find even little windows of individualizing opportunities? Um, And um, so even within whatever your reality is, can you start to imagine the use of some of those resources in an individualized way and even to negotiate that? Um, to be able to say, I, I know that you, my son or daughter is going to a day program for three days a week for, you know, five hours a day or whatever. But can a little bit of that time, you know, be used for something individualized? Not all of it, you know. So it's getting at what can you do? That's the other thing that probably the most disabling thing is actually thinking disabled, um, which is can't focused. And the issue really is, how do you focus on what you can do with what you do have? Um, and even if it's only a little, you know, if you if you equate this kind of, or if you um, use the example of if I'm trying to save money and I can only save five bucks a week, that's better than not saving five bucks a week. And that's going to go someplace down the road because I'm putting it there every week. And I, it's got two things going. One is it's growing. You know, there's more going on there. And two, it, the idea of investment and uh, interest, that there's something that happens um, uh, with that. Well, it's the same kind of thing for people in how you spend your time and where you spend your time and what you think of doing what your intent in that time is if you take a little bit of that with intent of growth then you'll start to see things are possible and i use the example you know if you can only get to the you know the the idea of if somebody loves music and they love singing if you can get regularly to that karaoke night or if you can join that choir or if you can you know even if it's only a few hours a week um, what's going to happen is you're going to start to establish relationships um, that are built on strength. The strength being just your passion, even if your skill isn't there. If you love singing, people are going to pick up on the fact that you love this singing. And you're going to become known as the person who loves what, 
they do, this kind of thing. So even that becomes a little bit of investing in those places actually makes a difference in terms of of uh, what grows as a result of it. So simply having an idea of growth, of investment, of putting what you have someplace that that possibility of that becoming more um, is there, that makes a difference. And even if it's not everything, even if it's not your entire life, um, investing in those places. And we, we all talk about this in normal terms for the rest of us, you know, if if we invest ourselves in things that we love, those things grow. It's just uh, you know it's just a common sense. But what we've had is that people have not focused on that. They've focused on finding placement and coverage because you don't have something to offer. Um, and that's so that's the big shift is for people to say no, I do. I might have to grow that. I might have to develop that. I might have to. You know, and it's going to take time and it's going to take investment. It's going to take all the kinds of things that are true for the rest of us. You know, the 10,000 hours of mastery, you know, um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's what we think of for everybody else. But when it comes to somebody with an intellectual disability, we're looking for a place for them to go um, with other people like them, which isn't is it's not even true. I mean, there isn't anybody else like them. Um, right. So. Yeah, no, I, I love that idea of investing in, even if it's only a small little piece, right, of, of your support into something that has the opportunity to grow into something more. And that idea of almost compound interest, right? So yeah. leveraging the the resources that you do have to turn it into something more. Because often what I hear from families is, you know, we don't have enough money or we don't have enough funding or, or resources. So the idea of investing and growing, um, the resources that you do have so that it's something more in in terms of, and maybe it's that investment isn't, you know, I'm not going to invest one, $1 and get $2 back, but I'm going to invest $1 and I'm going to get, you know, additional support in terms of relationships. Right. Yeah. I'm people who know me. I mean, that's the, the, one of the big things is is that the world for people who are identified with the disability gets narrowed by this placement and coverage idea, um, by the idea that the biggest characteristic that we identify you by is the syndrome you have, the diagnosis, the you know all that stuff. That's the biggest thing that we know about you. Then we lump you in with everybody else who has something that resembles that. Um, and you become known only by the people in that circle. That's the the most disabling thing that's happened is there's nothing wrong with having another friend who uh, who has you know similar experiences because they have Down syndrome. There's nothing wrong with that. But to be forced to have that be the only people that you get to know, that doesn't make any sense in terms of growth. And people are trapped into that kind of thing, and they they they're stuck. Um, so how do you get out of that? Well, you might not get out of it by fully getting out at any time, but you can start to kind of leverage again, going back to that five bucks a week saving, you know, I might have 500 bucks that I have, but most of it's got to go somewhere. But if I can put that five bucks somewhere, 
that's going to become more. The other thing that goes along with this placement and coverage thing that is a huge trap for people is because because they're not thinking of any place that people are going, they're not going somewhere in their life, then what ends up happening is they have a place, they have coverage, staffing, and then they have a schedule. And that schedule gets filled with activities. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have activities in my life. And I certainly don't have a calendar that's full of activities. And part of what happens with that activity thing is all we're doing is thinking about filling up the schedule with things to do instead of thinking about life differently, which is what do you love to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to grow in? And how can we find ways for you to be spending your time doing those things? We've got it the other way around. So one of the things that happens is people say they like going to out to eat. They like going to the mall that, you know, but their and so their schedule gets filled. But there's nothing growing because of that. And and the schedule not only gets filled, but the staff who work for them often think, oh, well, we, we need to keep this. We need to keep changing this. You know, we need to keep the activities filling up this kind of thing. And so there's no logic to where is this going. It's just fill the calendar, you know, fill the schedule. Um, so that uh, and so that we can report on the fact that the schedule was filled, and all of that is based on making sure that you you don't have a stagnant warehoused kind of life, which is what happened to people in institutions is there was no activity. People stood around doing nothing. Um, and so now we filled the schedule so that people are doing something, but it isn't necessarily going anywhere. Right. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when I look at my schedule, it's filled with things that I'm passionate about or it's filled with people that I want to connect with. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. So it's a much different way of thinking about it. So we've talked a little bit about how uh, families and individuals with disabilities can carry a mindset of abundance, investment, growth that will lead to much different outcomes in their lives, even if it's just in small little chunks where they can right now and, and starting that way. What about from an organizational perspective? How can organizations, what organization, what mindsets can organizations take and, and what choices can they make to support um, individuals to live the life that they truly want to live? Well, again, it's it comes down to how much can you individualize your support? How much can you think of people as individuals? Um, and the starting place for that is actually for an organization to actually do a bit of an audit of themselves to say, so how much do we actually treat people as individuals in this organization? Or how much of it is they are in placements with spaces that we have that we have a group mentality to the thinking of, of goes on. The organizations have to do a little bit of honesty to kind of check, are we actually really organized to support individuals or are we actually really just doing placements, coverage and activity schedules? Um, and any organization can check that out and see where they're at with all that. And then it comes back to, People can only do what they can do. So it's a matter of the organization saying, well, what can we do to individualize um, 
this idea that we're we're not thinking about you know Jane as a member of this group. We're thinking of Jane as Jane. So given what resources we have available to us, how can we actually organize those resources so that some of what happens in Jane's life is actually moving in that direction? The problem is, is that I actually, there's a saying that comes to me, which is, you can't get there from here. So the idea is, if you really are embedded in a placement and coverage model, you can't get to citizenship from there. Is it just like, is it, is it because the gap's too big or the fundamental principles underpinning it just will not allow you to get there? The fundamental, both principles and structure. Um, So the principles of placement and coverage are, safety protected from bad things happening in your life. Um, but the structure actually, you know, it's, it's a classic story you'll hear that somebody lives with two or three other people. Um, and there are staff scheduled to that house. The place is managed as a house in the first place. And if Bob wants to go somewhere, he can't go because the staff person, well, it's either everybody has to go or Bob can't go because the other people don't want to go. Like right. there's a there's some structural stuff that's just tied into that kind of thing yeah. that just prevent it from being possible to follow. And the people who get hired don't get hired for individuals. They get hired for the house. They get hired for the program. Because, uh, and they move, you know, like the staff change or whatever. So the mindset isn't continuous. It doesn't. So it's a real challenge for organizations um, on that front. They need to be honest with themselves about are they organized to be able to do things. And it is possible for them to do the thinking and the work that it takes to reorganize themselves. But it would take that kind of work. The other thing about that is the work needs to go into actually the way those organizations are paid by the government to do what they're doing that gets in the way of a lot of this kind of stuff. So organizations face a challenge based on what exists um, and how they've organized themselves and how they're paid for what they do and how they can actually go from this kind of group placement and coverage to individualizing is a real transformation for them, but they won't get there if they don't actually say, you know what, we're not organized for this. We have to rethink how we do this and renegotiate, you know, with the government to figure out how we can actually do things differently than we've done. But there has been no expectation that people are going anywhere. And that's that's still true, I think, for most organizations. You know, people end up in a program, and that's kind of where you are. You know, it's not structured for people to move on to to, or if you get placed in a house, unless bad things happen, it's not structured with the idea that this is just the place you're in now while you're onto the, you know, while you're moving on to the thing that's important to you right. or the place that you want to live and all that kind of stuff. So, right. and it takes a lot of courage as a leader 
to go down that path and to go through that, to lead through that transformation and to, to own that type of, of thinking. Um, Because it's, you know, when you think about it from an organization's standpoint and sustainability and, you know, change within an organization, it's probably easier not to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, there isn't a lot of incentive built in. It would take leadership to bring that incentive. Mm-hmm. And change has got its challenges, right? I mean, it's there's always a challenge with what um, change is all about. But if we just, well, first of all, one of the earlier points is the models that we created historically, this kind of model that has a small group roughly 25 to 30% using 75 to 80% of the resources, it's simply not sustainable. So we need to do something different because it's just not possible to expand. You can't expand that model uh, given the number of people who are, and it's pretty common that it probably is between 20 to 30% the population that are getting 75 to 80 percent of the resources from government that's not that's not politically sustainable and it's not economically and practically sustainable so it really takes leadership from organizations to say you know what that's not sustainable it's no different than any other major issue somebody's got to imagine something else which for those of you who are on this podcast that's why you want to listen to Patty Scott, because she is actually one of the most brilliant leaders who have actually imagined doing something else. Um, and what did it take to do that? And then busting your butt to actually do it. It's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of work to sustain the kinds of stuff that we're sustaining now. It's just about how much energy do you get from the work and this kind of work, I think, when you see somebody actually become that citizen who's valued, that is really a, a rich experience. And to be a part of that actually fuels you to be able to do more. Um, and same for your family, family members. If I can actually do something that helps my brother, my sister, my son, my daughter to actually become someone who others see the way I see, that's, and, and to ultimately deal with the reality of when I'm not here, I know there are people who will be there. Um, that's that's a huge thing for people to work towards. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I completely agree with you. And um, in talking with Patty, and I know she's been doing it for a while, but I can still feel the energy that she has for the work and, and the passion and the fire behind yeah. it. From and I can see that that's really driven by the difference that she's been able to making people's lives to help them live their dreams and, and create the life that, that they desire. And, um, you know, I've felt that as well, just with the, the families that I work with and, you know, especially with the family closest to my heart, which is my own and Mm -hmm. to see the growth that, that my sister has had just from those shifts in, in mindsets towards, you know, being able to create the life that, that Sarah wants for herself. And, you know, that's probably the reason this podcast exists. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, Dave, I, I'm super grateful for you coming on the show today and, and to help us think differently about disability and to give us a lot of food for thought in terms of 
how we got here and, and, and where we're going and some, some mindsets that we can carry to really change the lives of, of people with, with disabilities. So super grateful for that. And, and Dave, where can people go to learn more about the work that you do with Neighbors International and, and how could they connect with you to um, continue a conversation? Sure. Well, the easiest way would be to go to our website, which is Neighbors. Um, that's spelled the British spelling, N-E-I-G-H-B-O-U-R-S dash international dot com. Um, and you can go there and you can find our um, email and contact information around that. We also have a Facebook page. So if you went to Facebook, uh, Neighbors International, you could reach us there. Um, I don't spend as much time on Twitter. Patty does do some of that, but I, I, I don't. So you won't, you can, you can find, I think uh, we do have a, I have a Twitter, which is Neighbors INTL, but I don't use it very much. <laughs> so go to the website. <laughs> website and our Facebook page. Um, and uh, yeah, those would be the easiest ways to connect with us. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it, Dave. All right. Thank you. Big thank you goes out to Dave Hasbury for joining me on the podcast today. And I hope that you, the listeners, really got something out of this conversation with Dave and the wisdom that he shares. And really, I, th- I think that it's helped me think differently about disability as well and helped to push my thinking a little bit further. And I hope that it's done the same for you. And if you take anything away from this podcast today, um, I hope that you take away that everybody has something to offer, no matter their disability or, or not. And we really have to give people the opportunity to grow that thing that they offer. And I'd really challenge you to think about one person in your life and how can you help to give them the opportunity to grow that thing that they have to offer. Next week, we have another fantastic guest joining us, Peter Marks, who is the founder uh, and director of a Center for Conscious Care. So Peter has over 35 years of experience uh, in the human and health services sector, and Peter has trained over 2,000 supporters in his conscious care uh, program. He's also a global leader in mindfulness. So Peter and I have a fantastic conversation about alternatives to the traditional medical model that is often used uh, for people with disabilities. And we talk about some of the different tools that Peter teaches and, and shares with people to provide care and, and support to uh, people with disabilities and specifically developmental disabilities. And he talks about some of the results that he's got from that and mindfulness being a hot topic in, in conversations today. Peter and I have a great conversation around mindfulness and, and share uh, a tool on how you can start to build your practice with mindfulness. So a great conversation with Peter coming next week. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, If you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, Be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. 
Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.